I'm Martin Tyler, and you're listening to Harry Simeon. How's it going? Welcome back to the Chronicles of Aguna, the Arsenal podcast, part of the 90 Min Football Network. As ever, I'm your host, Harry Simi, and on this edition of the show, we're going to be talking Unai Emery, who has returned to the Premier League. Will he, how will he fare at Aston Villa? Will he be a success? Will he be a failure? Um, does he deserve more respect given his achievements elsewhere? We'll get into all of that. We'll talk about the Christmas uh, fixture schedule, which is an absolute shit show. Let's be honest. If you're uh, planning on going to any of those games, I'm talking about Boxing Day, I'm talking about New Year's Eve, and I can understand why you'd be disappointed, frustrated uh, with the decision taken uh, by the Premier League in their scheduling of this. Well, no, actually, it's not even on the Premier League. It's on the broadcasters, right? They've picked the games, etc., etc. We're also going to chat Gabriel Jesus, um, who acknowledges himself that he's not been himself in the last few games. So uh, we'll talk a little bit about that. But I'll tell you guys why I think the criticism of the Brazilian at the moment is unwarranted and unjustified. Let's say a big hello to everybody in the chat. Big hello to Dave. Uh, I hope you're well, my friend. Uh, to Trev, uh, who says, uh, where's Mike Stavrou? Can't get him on two days in a row. He's big time. Costs a lot of money. Um, <laughs> uh, big shout out to Richie, who says, hi, Harry. The previous podcast with Shaban was great. She really knows the ladies game inside out. That's right. We dropped a bit of bonus content um, earlier on today, in which I was joined by Shaban Ahern, uh, who's a colleague, but also a very, very good friend of mine um, to talk about the Arsenal women. We talked Vivian Miedema, we talked Beth Mead, we talked the Women's Champions League, we talked about the knock-on effect of the Euros in the summer and how they've influenced and increased the coverage and the interest around the women's game. We got into all of that. Uh, we've also got uh, Henry in the chat who says, good afternoon, H North London forever. Come on, you gunners. Uh, he says he hates Villa and their fans. <laughs> well, hopefully uh, they'll... Um, and actually, this is not fair on Unai Emery. I was going to say, hopefully he messes him up, but then that's not really fair on Unai. I've got no no real issue with him, and uh, and I kind of do wish him well. Uh, the Manhattan Film Festival says, in show business, being on time comes with the job. It's 11 a.m. in New York City. Where is he? Do you class this as show business? Really? Um, I wouldn't put it in that category. Uh, but as I always say, we always schedule the podcast five minutes earlier than we're actually going live. And that is because, as I've said to you guys many times, I always get people telling me that they don't get the notification in time. Uh, Amira says, good morning, afternoon, good evening to Harry and the chat. Jid says, yo. Uh, El Ya says, Harry, do you love us? Of course. Uh, love every single one of you. And uh, Norwegian Guna says, he won't be a success. Trust me. Uh, we'll get into all of that on this edition of the show. But before we do that, I just want to quickly remind you about how you can become a member of the Chronicles of Aguna podcast. And uh, in order, uh, sorry, if you do so, uh, not only would you be supporting a charity uh, that is um, that is very important to me, and that is, of course, the Great Ormond Street Children's Hospital uh, charity, but you'll also uh, be supporting me to bring you more content and get access to more content. The latest premium bit of content dropped earlier today. And that is, of course, uh, the latest edition of the members mailbag. So if you remember, you get the opportunity to put questions in and that show is then built around your questions. 
and uh, the latest one dropped earlier today. So if you go to www.anotherslice.com forward slash Chronicles of Aguna, uh, the link is in the description. You'll come onto the homepage. If you go to the top of it, if I just show you now for those of you watching, uh, there is a create account option, create the account. Um, once you've done that, you log in via the account and then you subscribe to the Chronicles of Aguna, like you can see on your screen. Once you've done that, you can then download the Another Slice app and you'll have all of that premium content at your fingertips. Now, I've just been told by Another Slice that there is now an option for me to be able to gift memberships for a period of time um, to people. So what we're going to do is uh, we're going to run some competitions over the coming weeks and we're going to give uh, some free month subscriptions to people. And you can decide if you like it. If you do, you can keep it on. If you don't, no hard feelings. But um, yeah, we're going to be doing that. And for those of you who um, who are already subscribed on another slice, I'm trying to find out if there's a way that I can gift you guys uh, a month free as well on the setup. So yeah, looking into all of that and I'll bring you updates on that ASAP. But thank you uh, all so much for your continued support as always. Okay, let's do it. Unai Emery, former Arsenal boss, has been appointed to replace Steven Gerrard at Aston Villa. Well, how do I think he's going to fare? I'm not sure is the honest answer to that. I think it's really, really difficult uh, to predict how Unai Emery is going to get on in this job. I think at the time when he was in charge of Arsenal, those of you that have been following or listening to the show since then will know that I was really critical. In a lot of ways, me being so critical of Unai Emery at a time when it probably wasn't the norm, and, and probably we I would say we weren't at the point yet where that was the wider consensus. It actually caused me to get a lot of grief, a lot of stick online. Um, it caused a lot of people to kind of send messages to me that you don't want to be sent. Um, but at the same time, I think what it did was, I don't know if it elevated the podcast, but the numbers went up at that point because I think people were tuning in out of interest to see what I was going to say about Unai Emery. And some people thought I was unfair at the time. Others agreed with me. Over a period of time, that that sort of shifted a little bit. And I think that people who were once very, very critical of me, based on what I was saying about Unai Emery's tenure, sort of softened their stance towards me. And a lot of those people that had initially come on board to have a go at me actually ended up becoming long-time listeners of the show. And so... Like, although I got a lot of heat for my opinion, and it was genuinely my opinion, it wasn't me trying to be clickbait, it wasn't me trying to drum up an audience out of nothing. Those of you that have watched this or listened to this for any period of time will know that's not my style. Um, but it did, in a weird way, work out quite well in the end because, as I say, a lot of the people that had initially come over to have a go at me started to see what I was saying after a while and actually then got on board and have become some of the most loyal listeners to the podcast, which is incredible. Um, but yeah, look, so Unai Emery's time for me was was a weird one. It was a, it was an up and down one. Um, you know, it was, there were highs and there were lows for me. You know, I think highs included uh, sort of going to a European final. You know, we hadn't done that in a while and it's always an honour and a privilege to get that far in European competition. But the lows, I think, massively outweighed the highs. You know, we were absolutely battered uh, by Chelsea in the final. We weren't at the races at all. We were really poor that day. Um, I don't know that I pin, in fact, I don't pin 
that specific performance, that one performance on that one day on Unai Emery. I don't think you can. I think it's really unfair uh, to do that because, you know, he's not the one going out there and, and performing on the pitch. But where I do blame Unai Emery is, is in the Premier League where we collapsed at the end of that season because he decided, in my view, to disrespect the Premier League and felt that the Europa League was the way to go. Now, he's got a track record in that competition. I can understand the temptation why when he saw that the Europa League was winnable, he felt that he needed to prioritise that. But unfortunately, it blew up in our faces because if you go on and lose the final and you've you know, shown a disrespect to the Premier League, then, then you're going to end up in shit street. And that's ultimately what happened, right? What happened was he rested players against Crystal Palace. He, he got the team wrong against Brighton. And in those two games where we failed to pick up the points that we needed, that was ultimately our undoing in terms of making the top four. Now, we were very close to the top four. We were. We were really close to the top four in Unai Emery's full season. But, you know... <laughs> How much of that was was him and how much of that was him managing just to squeeze a little bit more out of the team that was left to him? I think it's probably more of the latter. I think that Unai Emery managed to squeeze out a bit more from some of the players that Wenger just wasn't getting anything out of. There were a few additions that summer. Um, Bern Leno was an addition that came in. He'd done OK. Uh, Socrates was an addition that came in under that regime. Licksteiner. Uh, Torreira, Guendouzi. Um, I'm trying to think who else uh, who else sort of came in around that time. And it just, you know, it just, it never felt like we were moving in the right direction. And actually, when you compare the way we were recruiting then in comparison to how we're recruiting now, where we're looking at young, hungry, developing players, they're worlds apart. The two approaches are worlds apart. This Arsenal regime now would never hire or never sign, I beg your pardon, Socrates or Stefan Licksteiner. And Arsenal were in this weird place that the transfer strategy was all over the shop. People look at Nicolas Pepe as a massive flop, a massive failure. That wasn't down to Unai Emery. We know that Unai Emery wanted a, a different option. He was very keen on Wilfred Zaha and Arsenal as a football club. Couldn't make that happen, didn't want to make that happen. And so where I do have some sympathy for Unai is that he didn't get the power, the autonomy, the control that Mikel Arteta has since been given. And that power, that autonomy, that control, or being able to have a big say in the recruitment strategy has seen Mikel Arteta make strides forward eventually after a period of time, after having to weed out all the shit that was left behind, not just by Unai Emery, but by Arsene Wenger before him and by the previous people running the club and, and calling the shots upstairs. So. Emery might have done better had he been more in control. But then I started to think about this today when I was kind of like in a reflective mood. And actually, if you look at all the jobs in which Unai Emery's been successful, he's always been a head coach. He's always been somebody who has a director of football, a sporting director above him who calls the shots in that sense. And where Unai Emery's talent lays is that he's good at getting and extracting the maximum and maybe more than others can from certain players. But the players just weren't good enough at that point, at that time. You know, we, we weren't. And that only ever felt like a short-term fix. To try and squeeze a bit more out of 
the likes of Socrates, out of Licksteiner, out of people that were ultimately finished at Arsenal Football Club that weren't really going anywhere, was only something that could work for a short period of time. And it never felt like we were going to move forward. And that was my big gripe with Emery, right? It was always, where is this going? Where is is the plan? I can't see it. I can't understand it. And people make fun of his accent and people make fun of his, um, you know, his English and stuff. And I, I didn't necessarily think that was fair. But what I will say in relation to the language barrier is that it certainly made it difficult for him to communicate with the fans. And I think unlike Mikel Arteta, if you can't communicate your ideas across then it's difficult for you to get the buy-in of people. Now, I remember Arteta's press conference. When he came in, he spoke clearly, concisely about what it is that he wanted to do, what needed to happen. And instantly I was hooked. And that made a big difference. And with Emery, we never got that because of the language barrier. So I do think, although it's unfair and wrong to mock him for the way he spoke English, and that's totally out of order, I do think there is some credence, though, to the argument that the language problem was a problem and one that held him back and 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 prevented that relationship building between him and the fans. He is a head coach. He's not a manager. And actually, although I say, yeah, maybe if he was given more control, he might have done a better job. There's nothing really in the past to suggest that Emery is the type of person you should give control to. Now, you can argue that was the same of Mikel Arteta, but I think with Edu above him and, and with him sort of demonstrating his ideas in a much clearer and concise way, the club probably felt like that was something they were willing to do and willing to take a gamble on in the way that maybe they wouldn't have with Unai Emery. But anyway, look, that's enough about his time at Arsenal because we can go on about this all day and we've spoken about it many a times before. But how will he do at Aston Villa? I look at that Aston Villa group and I think it's underachieving. I think it's a group that is far more talented than their position in the Premier League table suggests. I think it's a group that switched off from Steven Gerrard. I think it's a group that Steven Gerrard wasn't able to uh, maximise in terms of their potential. And as a, as a result, I think an appointment like Unai Emery, who, as I've said, has got a knack history of being able to, you know, extract more I think that's the right type of appointment. I mean, I saw a, a piece that was um, that was tweeted out earlier by Talksport, which said Aston Villa fans are underwhelmed by the appointment of Unai Emery, underwhelmed by the appointment of a manager who's won multiple European Cups, a side that haven't finished in the top 10 since I think 2011, 2012, are going to turn their noses up at a manager like Unai Emery Nah, that, that's nonsense. If that is true, if that is the general consensus among Villa fans, then I'm sorry, but my opinion is simply that your opinion of yourselves is much higher than it actually warrants being. Aston Villa are a big club in terms of their support. They've got a decent-sized stadium, all of that jazz. They're in the second city. They're the big club in the second city. I get all of that. They're a big football club. But being a big football club isn't just about how many people support you or follow you. It's about the way you run, the way you operate, the way um, you conduct yourselves. And and for me, Aston Villa have been a club for a while that have had ridiculous expectations in line with what they're actually capable of achieving. Now, they did spend money in the last couple of seasons. And I think where Gerard was unlucky is that he 
Um, he was without a lot of the players that they spent big money on through injury. And he, he can feel a little bit hard done by there. But it wasn't working. You know, generally speaking, it wasn't happening. You know, he brought players like Coutinho in. He couldn't couldn't extract anywhere near the same level out of him that we've seen in the past. Maybe there's an argument that that's down to Coutinho more than anybody else, given the stage in his career that he's at. But I just think, you know, Gerard wasn't the type of character that, that I warmed to. And don't think the Villa fans warmed to him either, as you could probably tell by the reaction and and some of the chants being sung during their recent game against Fulham. But I think what needs to happen now is is somebody needs to go in there on the charm offensive. You know who would do that? I don't like him, but Jose Mourinho would do that. He's done that time and time again, ever since he left Chelsea the second time when his stock just started to fall a little bit. He went to Tottenham. Uh, sorry, he went to Manchester United. He charmed the shit out of them at the beginning and it bought him a bit of time. In the end, his methods were found to be out of date and we can have that debate about Mourinho over and over again. But he managed to to get the love of the fans, by the love of the fans, by being charming. Being charming Jose Mourinho. And he obviously delivered a trophy. Uh, I think he delivered a couple of trophies to Manchester United and he finished second in the league, which he says to this date is his biggest achievement in football. But then he went south at Manchester United. And so what does he do? He reinvents himself, goes on the charm offensive and ends up landing the Tottenham job. And for a while, he's the hero and he's everybody's favourite person at Tottenham. The documentary, the Amazon doc, he plays a massive part in that. Why? Because he's going on the charm offensive and it worked. And again, he's done the same at Roma. You know, he's gone in there. He's he's said all the right things. He's done all the right things and he's got the Roma fans eating out of the palm of his hand and it helps that he's delivered a trophy as well, which is ultimately what people want. Steven Gerrard never seemed capable of that to me. You know, I, I found him cold. I found him, you know, it's just his character, a little bit stern. Um, I, I just, you looked at him in interviews and you didn't ever feel like you could warm to this guy. And I think the Villa fans need that. I mean, look at Frank Lampard. Frank Lampard can be a bit prickly at times and has, you know, on numerous occasions sort of thrown players under the bus and and done bad things and wrong things as a manager. But equally, he's got the Everton fans on side now, not because Everton are amazing now. You know, they just about avoided the drop last season, but because he's convinced them by being a clear and strong communicator about what it is that he wants to do. And, and he's got Everton doing the basics now and they're a much better side than they were 12 months ago and credit to him. Can Unai Emery do that at Aston Villa? Can Unai Emery go in and woo the Villa fans and convince them that he deserves the time to turn this around? I'm not sure he can, but what Unai Emery has that Steven Gerrard didn't was an array of trophies in his history to be able to present to people and say, well, look, look what I've got. These are the fruits of my labour. This is what I'm capable of achieving. Steven Gerrard didn't have either of those two things, not the charm and certainly not the record and the medals to back it up. You know, he achieved in Scotland, but is that the same? Not in my book. Emery is someone who uh, probably feels he's got a point to prove in the Premier League, probably feels as though 
he was laughed out of the Premier League a little bit and and probably feels hard done by by that. And you know what? To be fair to Unai, yeah, that's that's a, a valid opinion to have. You know, we spoke about it um, on the members' mailbag show. We spoke about um, you know the uh, the incident in which a fan. Uh, was videoing Unai Emery and, you know, while he was in charge of VRAL and sort of asked him to say good evening, the, the kind of phrase that he was, I, I'm even saying it, I shouldn't even be saying it like that, but you know how Unai Emery used to say good evening um, at the start of his press conferences. And that was, that became a bit of a, a sort of a thing to kind of um, poke fun at him over. And a fan did it and he, he sort of raised the middle finger uh, back at the fan and, and that was turned into a big deal. And, and it just left a bit of a sour taste. Listen, all power to Unai Emery. If someone's going to come up to you, get their phone out and try and take the piss out of you, uh, then you should be able to respond, right? You should be well within your rights to, um, you know, to to basically tell him to F off. And I don't see why it's always the people that give it out that are then the ones that run to social media to post it and discuss how outraged they are by uh, said person's actions. And, and that drives me nuts. So, Fair play to Emery on that. But look, he'll be motivated. And I think another thing to note as well, and I don't really know um, what the deal is in Spain right now. It's La Liga is a league I used to watch a lot of back in the day when Sky had coverage of it. Since that went away, I do have La Liga TV, but I really rarely watch it because my second interest outside of the Premier League and outside of Arsenal is the Serie A. And that's where I spend the rest of my time. Um, but I mean, I was just thinking about it, like Villarreal went to the very late stages of the Champions League last season, right? Which was a phenomenal achievement on their part. And Unai Emery deserves immense credit for that. And then I looked at what they did in the transfer market this summer in terms of business. And they'd only spent something like five million pounds so while there are people out there saying, why would Unai Emery leave Villarreal, a side that he took to the deep stages of the Champions League, the latter stages of the Champions League, I think the last four, if I'm not mistaken, why would he leave a club that he took that far in Europe's premier competition to go and join a 15th place Aston Villa? I feel like Unai Emery had got to a point at Villarreal where he didn't feel he could go any further because of the restrictions of the football club. To go on a Champions League run like that is incredibly valuable from a monetary perspective. And then to only be given a measly five odd million pounds to try and build the squad to go to the next level is is ex unacceptable, isn't it? And as a manager, you must feel at some point that, you know, you're, you're kind of being cheated a little bit. I don't know what Villarreal's situation is. I think actually that Champions League run was probably key in them securing... Uh, their financial status and it's probably in the bigger picture much more important than giving Unai a few more million to spend on players but you know he, he rejected the Newcastle job before Eddie Howe got it because he didn't feel like it was the right time he was still it sort of invested in the project at Villarreal and didn't want to walk away from it at that point I bet he probably thinks now he wish he took the Newcastle job given their riches but Villa is a good opportunity too and where Villa different differs, I beg your pardon, to Newcastle is that the pressure won't be the same. Newcastle can spend. Everybody knows that Newcastle can spend. And so Eddie Howe at some point will be under pressure. Aston Villa is a club that has the potential to blow up into a much bigger one. But there isn't that massive level of expectation, at least from the outside looking in anyway. 
so it will buy him some time. It will give him an opportunity to build. And I do think he can do an okay job. What's a good job for Aston Villa? Top half of the table? I think he can achieve 10th, 11th, maybe 12th position based on the start they've had as well. Um, I think that would represent a decent campaign for Unai Emery. But what he can do is he can take you far in the cups. He's very much a cup manager. He's traditionally struggled to balance between cup and league competitions. But in the cups, his record speaks for itself. He's very good tactically. He's very meticulous. He's very detailed in his preparation. And as a result of that, he can often find the smallest of advantages and um, and level the playing field as a result of that. Uh, so I think, yeah, he'll do OK for the most part. I don't think he's going to skyrocket Aston Villa up to being in contention as one of the top eight, top seven or anything like that. But I think a mid-table finish is achievable and potentially a cup run for a side who could really, really do with it. So those are my thoughts on Unai Emery at Aston Villa. Genuinely, I didn't want him at Arsenal. Um, I didn't think he was the right man pretty early on in his tenure. But that's not because, well, it's not solely because of Unai Emery and his managerial ability. It was partly down to... Um, how poorly the club was being run, partly down to the lack of structure uh, behind the scenes, partly down to the disconnect between him and the people uh, making the signings. That was as clear as anything to see. And uh, I genuinely wish him all the best at Aston Villa. Um, so, yeah, Unai, all the best. And um, look forward to seeing him at Arsenal in the not too distant future. He's an underdogs coach, isn't he? Like, when you think of Unai Emery, you win the Europa League with Sevilla, it's a bit of an underdog story when you think about some of the Champions League clubs that were dropping into that competition. When you think of him at Villarreal going as far as the last four of the Champions League, that's another underdog story. His Valencia side were achieving things that was below what you'd expect for a club that could spend what they were spending at the time when they were in a, a financial mess as well. So he's a bit of an underdogs coach and, and maybe that will suit Aston Villa. But anyway, moving on from Unai, while I... Um, while I take a breather, I'm going to ask you guys uh, just to leave a like on the video uh, while you are waiting uh, or while you're enjoying the show. You're not going to wait that long. You're going to wait about three seconds for this very, very short advert break. In fact, it is literally three seconds. Uh, but leave a like on the video. Subscribe to the channel if you're new. And I'll be back in just a sec. Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's trusted financial journalists use fact-based reporting for some much-needed clarity in the finance world, helping you make smarter decisions with your money. The nerds have helped me get smarter about things like planning for my tax bills so I don't dread April every year, producing a balanced budget, not just for football, and saving on travel because spending less on airfares means more money for an extra night and maybe a fancy dinner too. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favourite podcast app. Future you will thank you. Okay, welcome back to the Chronicles of Aguna podcast. Let's move into part two and let's talk about the Christmas fixture schedule. Weird, weird season, FA Cup, FA Cup, World Cup, I beg your pardon. Slap bang in the middle of the season. It's thrown a spanner in the works and football will take a pause before returning on Boxing Day where Arsenal uh, will play West Ham United at Emirates Stadium in an eight o'clock kickoff. <laughs> I'm not that upset about this on a personal level because the way I see it is more often than not, I end up 
going somewhere on Boxing Day, not spending time with the family. And somewhere along the line, it will be thrown in my face that, you know, I, I chose to abandon my kids on Boxing Day and went to the football instead. Somewhere along the line, that comment will come up, right? So actually, for me on a personal level, the fact that I'll be able to spend Boxing Day with my kids, with my family, and then jump in my car at about six o'clock and drive down to Emirates Stadium and go to the game, that actually works quite well. But that's me on a personal level. I totally understand and appreciate that for most people, this is an absolute nightmare. Travel on Boxing Day is a pain in the ass as it is. Imagine having to get home from a game that's going to finish around about 10 p.m. if you live far. I think this kickoff time, 8 p.m., is diabolical. And I think a lot of people are going to suffer as a consequence of this. A lot of people are not going to be able to go to the game and get back from the game as a result of this stupid decision taken um, to, to put this game at 8 o'clock. Now, someone's got to do it. Someone's got to play at that time. Um, and, and that's the way the broadcast deals work. But, yeah, I, I mean, as I say, for me, it's it's actually OK. And I actually quite like the idea of having my day and then going afterwards. But I can see why for a lot of people, this is a real pain and I've got a lot of sympathy for them. The other one as well. Now, this one is an even bigger pain in the arse, in my opinion. Uh, New Year's Eve, Arsenal travel to Brighton and kickoff is at 5.30pm. So if the game finishes at, let's say, half seven and it takes you two hours to get back to London, you're talking about half nine, what can you actually do on New Year's Eve? Like most of your night is gone. Um, yeah, I, I I don't like this. I don't like this at all. I think this stinks. I think this is uh, really poor. Again, no consideration for the fans, as has been the case for a number of years now. Um, but for me, this one is more annoying. This one is more um, unsettling. This one is more... What's the right term? This one is going to cause me personally more difficulty than the Boxing Day one. But again, the travel situation for so many people is just going to be difficult, inconvenient. And again, as I say, no consideration shown for the fans and the people that are really the heartbeat of the game. Uh, moving on from fixtures, uh, let's talk a little bit about Gabby Jesus, because uh, he's been speaking quite candidly and quite openly following the game at Southampton. He said that uh, or he made a comment around the lack of goals um, from him recently. Obviously, missed a couple of chances uh, at Southampton, and that's been quite a big talking point over the last few days. Um, but, I mean, I'm not worried. I'm not massively concerned. I think he's been such a breath of fresh air. I think he's added so much to our attack. I think he's transformed our attack into something that is far more threatening and dangerous than we've seen in a long, long time. I think he's brought the best out of the players around him. I think he sets the tone in terms of energy and effort. I know nobody says that he's not 100% fit, but he did pick up a problem against Liverpool and then came back quite quickly and played in the Europa League against PSV last Thursday. Didn't look quite at it at Leeds. Didn't look quite at it against PSV in the second half anyway. Was really good in the first, but I thought faded away a little bit. And again, it was the same at the weekend. Really strong in the first half, faded away in the second. So I'm wondering if the fitness thing is catching up with him. And this is not a new problem. Mikel Arteta has mentioned this already this season. He talked about the fact that we need to manage Gabby's minutes because 
This is a guy who was at Manchester City, who played a lot of games, in a lot of competitions, but he wasn't starting every week. He was spending a lot of time on the bench and a lot of time he'd only come on and play 20, 25 minutes. And so to now ask this same guy to flip reverse that and play 90 minutes in most cases, um, every single game, Europa League, Premier League, it will be Carabao Cup, it will be FA Cup, whatever. I think it's a big ask. And I think you're seeing him struggle a little bit physically. Sometimes with a striker, you just need a goal. You know, you get a goal and it, it just elevates everything again and it gets you going again and it gets you moving again. And I guess on paper, there's no real better fixture than Nottingham Forest at home coming up at the weekend for him to do that, get back onto the the wagon, get back into the habit of scoring goals and continue the form he's shown. Even still though, even still, even despite the criticism he's received in the last 24, 48 hours, I still think he's been a magnificent signing. I still think he's been... um, incredibly important to the team. And I think that, you know, he's got credit in the bank for me to be able to kind of steer clear right now or to want to steer clear of the criticism at this stage. He's had a couple of games where he's been a little bit below par based on the very high standards that he himself has set. I'm not concerned. I'm not worried. Um, And he says the goals are coming back soon. Fingers crossed uh, they return at the weekend. Uh, That's Gabby Jesus. Um, Okay, we're going to take some of your questions and thoughts from the live chat. So feel free to drop uh, some of your questions in there. If I could just quickly remind you once again, if you haven't done so already, please leave a like on the video. Please subscribe to the channel if you are new. Check out our membership proposition by uh, reading the information in the description. We'd love to have you and our latest bit of members content dropped earlier on today. Uh, Okay, let's take this one from, uh, let's have a discussion. Who says, uh, hello, Harry, love from New Delhi and a happy Diwali to everyone in the chat. What are your thoughts on Xhaka? Is he our MVP since last season until now. Uh, First of all, big hello to all our Indian viewers and listeners. I know there are loads of you. Uh, Happy Diwali to everybody that celebrates, of course. And and what are my thoughts on Xhaka? I've I've been waxing lyrical about Granit Xhaka all season. I think he's been unbelievable. I think he's been so consistent. I think he's been so effective. I think he's given us so much in the build-up, but he's scoring goals now as well as finishing chances. He's getting into those areas is um, arriving at the edge of the penalty area, taking defenders away sometimes from other players. And at other times, he's taking advantage of the gaps left by the runs made from people like Jesus or Martinelli. And, you know, he's just done a a superb job this season. Is he our MVP? I I wouldn't go as far as saying that. And the the reason I say that is because I think there are other players in the team that we just can't replace. Like, I think in an attacking sense, for example, I think Fabio Vieira could do what he does going forward. Okay, he's not as big and strong and as and as um and as physical and therefore probably isn't as effective defensively, um, isn't as effective in terms of winning that physical battle. And and, and probably from a positional standpoint as well, I think Xhaka, you know, is a much smarter defender, even if he does get himself in trouble from time to time. His his defensive positioning is better than Vieira's, right? So I think Half of what Jacques is bringing to the table right now, Vieira could bring you that, but he's not the complete package to swap him around right now, I would say. Um, but the reason I don't make him the MVP, most valued player, I think that's what it stands for, um, is because if we lost him, I think we're weaker, but I think we can cope. I don't think we can really cope 
with Gabriel Jesus being out, I don't think we can really cope with Thomas Partey being out. Those are the two players that I look at and think, without you, we're half the team. And and that's why I can't put Xhaka in that category. But um, but he is really important. He is certainly one of the most important. He's certainly one of Mikel Arteta's leaders. He's certainly someone who's managed to turn the opinion of him upside down uh, in recent months. And and I'm I'm glad to see it. I'm delighted to see it. And long may it continue. Thank you so much, mate, um, for your very, very kind donation. Uh, just going back to Jesus quickly, Trev says, Jesus is like every striker they go through. Lulls, give him a bite. You're absolutely right. Uh, we're not at the point yet where we need to start being worried about it. Um, Comdine says, two questions. First of all, what's your opinion on Enzo Enzo Lafitte, is that? Are you, is this one of those where you're trying to catch me out, or is this a player that I don't know? Uh, no, you're, there, there is a player, Enzo Lafay, I think it's pronounced probably. Uh, I had to, I had a moment there. I thought it was one of those where you're trying to trap me into saying something that I shouldn't on air. Bloody hell! Uh, my apologies, Calm Dean. Um, he says, uh, "What is your opinion on him?" Honestly, I didn't even know he existed, so I'm not going to sit here and pretend. Uh, and lie to you <laughs> that I know uh, a lot about him. Uh, always Jim jumping on the joke as well, says that Lafay will be too large. Uh, love that. Um, but no, look, I don't know anything about the player. I'll be lying to you and I, I don't want to sit there and pretend to have knowledge um, that I don't because I just look like a bit of a twat and maybe think that you're trying to catch me out like I just did. Uh, but he does go on to ask about Victor Osimen and... Um, <laughs> Ossiman is someone that I do know quite a bit about, so I'll happily take this bit on. Um, Condine says it would be dangerous to let him go to an to a rival. I think Victor Ossiman is is so suited to Premier League football. You know, he's got explosive pace. He's physically really strong and powerful, and he's such an accomplished goal scorer and finisher. He scored a superb goal for Napoli in Rome the other night on Sunday night that ultimately won uh, Napoli the game. Uh, which was, um, you know, a big deal. He's he's not scored as many goals this season, but that's because he's been held back by injuries and then he's not always been in the starting lineup while sort of the club have been nursing that injury and bringing him back to full fitness. But the goal he scored, I mean, watch the goal that he scored against Roma the other night. You watch that and that's that's kind of all you need to know about um, about Victor Osman. Just watching that will tell you what a top-class striker is. I'd love to have him, but as is always the case, with uh, Aurelio De Laurentiis, you're going to have to break the bank to get the play. I mean, and I mean, you're going to have to pay well over the odds. Um, and I don't know that Arsenal will be able to or willing to do that, having put the fee that they did on Gabriel Jesus. I, I'm not sure. I'd love to sign him. I don't see it, though, mate. I've got to be honest. Um, Oz says, uh, big up, Harry. Enjoy your videos and analysis on the games. Glad to catch you live. Keep doing what you're doing, mate. Thank you so much. Uh, for your well wishes and uh, glad you're enjoying the show. Uh, all the best, mate. Thank you. Uh, Trev says, Harry, do you think our squad versatility gives our injured players the time they need to get back fully, unlike last season where we were having to rush players back? I think it helps. I think it helps. But I think also when you rotate too much, you end up with inconsistency and players struggle to find rhythms. And I think players can suffer as a result of rotation. So I think Kieran Tierney is suffering right now as a result of rotation. Um, 
because he's kind of got stuck in the cycle of playing in the Europa League games. Like, you know, you look at it now, right? So we've got PSV coming up and then we'll do the preview show for that tomorrow. But you look at it now, we've got PSV coming up on Thursday. Who's the fullback that didn't play? Kieran Tierney. So Kieran Tierney probably starts against PSV, but then the rotational strategy that Mikel Arteta is implemented or, or is trying to, to implement probably means he doesn't then start against Nottingham Forest. Now, I keep saying this, this cycle with Tierney, it has to be broken at some point if he's going to be the left-back in the absence of Zinchenko. But yeah, it's a hard one. I, look, I think the versatility thing is good and I think it's certainly something that Mikel Arteta wants. Um, and, and in theory, if you've got a system that everybody understands and you've got players that can play in multiple positions, your level should never really be as disrupted as it could be. Um, but I still think there are a couple of positions where we're not good enough. And I think actually in the forward positions, we got a bit of a problem right now as well. And I think this is an issue that um, I think this is an issue now that um, that we are we're facing in the forward line. You know, for example, in the Europa League games, I've, I've sat there and I've gone to uh, put together my lineup. You know, I did it against Bodo Glimt. I did it against PSV in the first game. And you're sitting there and you're thinking, yeah, you know what? I want the the Nelsons to play. I want the Marquinhos's to play. I want Enketia to get to lead the line in the way that he wants to. But if I play all of them at once, am I going too weak? Is that team good enough? And that tells me that there's a big drop-off. Now, I would argue that Vieira could potentially play on one of the wide positions, but we need to use him in midfield because we're without Mohamed Neni, who's another one of our rotational players. He's out injured, obviously. I would argue that Emil Smith-Rowe would be nailed on in that side right now. But again, he's unavailable. And, the you know, it only takes two or three injuries, two or three problems in this entire squad to leave us threadbare. And that's where I'm worried. And so, yeah, you'll look at the players and, and you'll say, and I said this at the start of the season, I used to say, well, if players are versatile, you don't need as many because you you have a smaller squad in the knowledge that some players can play multiple positions, but that doesn't help you in the numbers department and numbers is where we're short, unfortunately, you know? Um, so yeah, I, th I think it helps in some ways to have that versatility when you're talking about saving players, giving them the rests and breaks they need. But I also think when you are blessed with lots of versatility, maybe that can lead to you taking your eye off the ball in terms of the numbers that you need. But yeah, interesting. Uh, Matt, how you doing, mate? He says, uh, Harry, do you think Eddie Howe is getting too much praise for Newcastle being fourth? They've spent 200 million. Surely this is a minimum. I think Eddie Howe deserves the praise because I think Newcastle have, have improved significantly under his management. There's no question about that. Not only are they uh, much more proficient in attack and a lot more effective in attack, they're also much better defensively. And my question mark around Eddie Howe from his time at Bournemouth was always, can he set up a team to be more robust and solid defensively? And he's proved that he can do that at Newcastle, albeit with better players. I don't think he's, I think the praise he's getting is justified right now, but this is what I would say. We're 11 games in, man. And people on the Newcastle hype wagon need to just chill out a little bit. I think they're a good side. I think they're moving in the right direction. I think they'll probably add in January and they'll probably look to add in the summer significantly again beyond that. 
but the season is young. And if I'm going to sit here and say that Arsenal aren't going to win the league because the season is young, then I have to be consistent in my application of that across everybody. And whilst I've been impressed by Newcastle and I've seen some real positive signs, they still need to do more for longer to prove to me that they're somebody that can compete for the top six, top eight, let alone the top four. So I think he deserves praise, but I think it's a little bit early to be getting carried away over Newcastle. Afsar, a nice political question to throw into the mix. Opinion on the new prime minister. They're all awful, all of them. Every single one of them is clueless um, in their own way. Um, you know, I, I, I'm not happy with any of them. I haven't been happy with them for years. And um, personally, without getting into politics too much, I think that given how much of a shit show it's been and how many scandals there have been, and how many letdowns there have been, I personally think that it was time. It is time for a general election, but the rules don't allow that at the moment, um, which means that we're stuck with the party that's currently in power. And I guess of the options that were presented, i.e. Liz Truss, who was absolutely hopeless, managed to mess up the economy in the space of five days, even more so than it already was. Boris Johnson, who had been disgraced and removed from the position just, I think, less than 50 days ago. Or Rishi Sunak. I think I probably would have picked Rishi Sunak, but that doesn't mean that I agree with everything that he's going to do either. But listen, we won't get stuck on politics, but... Yeah, I couldn't resist a, a little bite there. Um, Mohammed says, hi, Harry, we must go big in January if we're to achieve anything this season. For me, Trossard is an ideal player for us. He's a goal scorer, he's talented and he can play in a front three. His deal is up in the summer. We need him. I like Leandro Trossard. I really do. Um, I would like to see Arsenal move for him. Um, I wasn't aware that his deal expires in the summer, but if it does, then I'd certainly be looking at that. I'd be all over that, in fact. Um, but yeah, interesting. Nice one, Mohammed. I hope you're well. Um, Trevor says, ask your mate, Tom, he knows about Enzo. Listen, Tom, Tom is, is one of those people with that incredible knowledge. Um, I don't claim to have, I know what I know. Uh, I know the leagues that I follow really well, but yeah, I don't know about Enzo. Is it Lefay, Lefay? I don't know, but yeah, anyway. Uh, what else have we got? Um, Alan says, Kieran Tierney is my first choice for the left-back position. We do not want him to become disillusioned. We need strength in depth, which is sadly lacking. I agree with you. We need strength, strength in depth. No question about that. And that's what I've kind of been banging on about for a lot of this show is that I still feel that as much as we've improved and as much as the squad is in, is in better shape than it has been for years, I still worry about that lack of strength in depth. I still worry about some of those positions. And um, the left-back one is not really one I worry about, right? Because we've got Zinchenko, we've got Tierney, and we've got Tommy Asu, who Mikel Arteta clearly feels can play there as well. Um, but the whole Tierney situation is strange in a lot of ways for me because... My view was always that the the only reservation Mikel had about him was not anything to do with his ability or application, but was around his fitness. And for now, for the time being, the fitness issue is not there. Yet he still doesn't get the nod. But again, it could go, it could be based on what I said a little bit earlier. Is it just 
cyclical? Is he stuck in the in the cycle in the fact that he played one Europa League game and then that became his routine because they are fearful of his fitness concerns and fitness issues resurfacing and so they don't want him to play more than one game a week, one full game a week. I don't know. I don't know. Um, will he become disillusioned? I think Tierney's a good professional. I don't think he'll be at that point now where um, he's like throwing his toys out the pram, but I don't feel like we're a million miles from that given, you know, what a good player he is. And he knows it as well. Big hello to Moss who says, Harry, do you think Emery could go after current and former gunners that he liked and wants uh, for Aston Villa? Potentially. He's got Callum Chambers there. <laughs> Um, maybe, you know, I think a lot of managers do that, don't they? They tend to gravitate towards players that they already know. Um, when you've got a specific system set up in mind and you're trying to think of players that would fit into that and plug into that, sometimes it's easier to go for someone, A, that you know, but B, that you know understands your way and your idea and then can help you as a manager on the pitch get that across to other people. Um, so, yeah, interesting. Interesting. Maybe he will. Not sure. Uh, what else have we got? Richie says, do you think our pre-season friendly lineup is getting too competitive intense with us playing a mini tournament in the US against, against top teams, almost asking us to play a stronger outfit? I mean, I think look, and in the latter stage of pre-season, you want to play a strong team because you want to get everybody up to speed. And obviously there is a lot of commercial benefit to what these clubs do going on tour, uh, wherever it is they go. Uh, some go to the Far East, some go to the States, some go to Australia, New Zealand. Um, you know, I think that there is there is obviously commercial benefits to that. The football side seems to be secondary. It seems to come second in people's list of priorities nowadays. It's just the nature of our game. It's sad to see. I hate the fact that it's like that, but it is the reality. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I don't have too much of a massive issue with it, but I can see why people are frustrated by it. Uh, I'm going to take a couple more before I wrap up. Let's take this one from uh, Abdullahi. Um, thank you so, so much uh, for your donation, my friend. Really, really appreciate it. He says, big up, Harry. I'm not being negative, but I'm worried about us a bit. Do you think making the top four, do you think we're making the top four without additional players to this squad? I don't. I think we've got to be lucky. And it's weird, right? Because this time last week, People were talking about Arsenal winning the Premier League. And now we've seen a couple of below par performances in the second half of games. And all of a sudden, everybody's sitting there and going, oh my God, are Arsenal going to make the top four? Are this Arsenal side actually any good? Do this Arsenal side have enough strength and depth to remain competitive throughout the duration of the season? I think the answer is somewhere in between. We tend to gravitate towards extremes, but the answer is somewhere in between. I think this Arsenal side is good enough to finish in the top four. And I think as long as we can avoid major long-term injuries that have the potential to derail us for a period of time, I think we'll be okay. The start has been encouraging. It's allowed us to create a bit of a buffer, a bit of a gap between some of the teams that we expect to be in competition with come the end of the campaign. I, I maintain that we're not good enough to win the league. I don't think we will. I, I don't think it can happen. Um, but top four is something that I'm hopeful we can achieve. Yeah, look, I do think we need to add in January. And I think we will try. And I think what 
what would work in Mikel Arteta's favour is if we do, you know, if we could somehow, and it's going to be difficult, right? Because we've got a game away at Chelsea to come and and a couple of other bits. But if we could go into that World Cup break at the top of the Premier League, that would give Mikel the ammunition, the the the, the kind of the evidence, the the backup, the support. Um, from Edu and everybody else within the club in terms of from a football side to be able to go and knock on KSE's door during that period of time and say, look, look where we are. Look where this team is. This team is sitting at the top of the Premier League. This team is competitive. This team is moving in the right direction. It's young, it's vibrant, it's exciting. But we know and we're well aware that we're only a couple of problems away from potentially falling off. And we don't want to fall off. We want to build. We want to continue that momentum. We want to take this project to the next level quicker, perhaps, than we ever thought that we could. But in order to do that, we need some money. And we need that money to come now. And even if Mikel Arteta says, give me the money for this player, that player, that I had earmarked for the summer, but I believe that if we bring him in now, today, we'll be able to accelerate the process. And I think Arsenal have to do that. But I think his case as a manager and Edu's case as an executive when going and approaching the ownership is a much stronger one in the position that we're currently in. So I think the significance of staying, okay, maybe not top. Okay, maybe Man City will leapfrog us. Maybe we go get beat at Chelsea and City leapfrog us. But to be in the top two, top three, and within touching distance of the top of a Manchester City side that have been imperious for years now would give Mikel Arteta, I think, the clout to go and say to the ownership, this is what I need in January. This is how we maintain it. Back me, support me, help me get there. Thank you, uh, Abdullahi, for your question. Uh, Javier says, do you have high expectations for Arsenal this season or are you keeping your expectations low given our results and this season's form? Um, my expectations are just uh, where they were at the start of the season, finishing the top four. That's not changed. Um, that's not changed. I, I, I don't want to kind of repeat what I've just said, but um, feel free to rewind and, and you'll get there. Um, you'll hear uh, what I said. Um, about sort of the, uh, the the process where I think we're at and what I think is achievable this season. Thank you so much, Javier. Really appreciate it. Uh, last question I'm going to take uh, because I've got a dash. Uh, Jid says, what do fans mean when they call the squad thin? How many positions do we lack competent backup for? Competent, not world beaters, because very few squads have benches of world beaters. Now, I agree with this. Okay, I think Jid makes a great point here. Liverpool, good example of that, right? If you look at their team, not last season, the season before when they had some injuries and, and, and they ended up falling quite far behind as a result, far behind of, um, of Manchester City. You looked at people like Virgil van Dijk and you went, this guy's so bloody good that it's impossible to have a clone of him on the bench that you can just call on. And, and bring into the picture when, when he's not available. And the same can be said of, for example, Thomas Partey. I think he's so damn good that asking or expecting to have another Partey on the bench 
is incredibly unrealistic and not something that is doable, really, I don't think. So when I say that we need depth in those areas, I don't expect us to have another Thomas Partey. But what you want is you want players that bring similar attributes to the table so that when they come in, even if the level's not the same, the system is not impacted and it's not affected. So I'll use last season as an example of this, right? When we lost Thomas Partey in midfield, Mikel didn't feel that there was anybody capable of occupying that lone midfield position, defensive midfield, not defensive, but deep lying midfield position on their own. And hence that led to us reverting back to the two-man defensive midfield pivot of Xhaka and Elneny. And that disrupted us in other areas of the park as a consequence and as a result. So it's not about having world beaters for me. It's about having players that fit in, that slot in and do the same role. Lokonga, I'm not convinced, is a six like Thomas Partey. I don't really know what Lokonga is. I'm really struggling with that at the moment. I think he's probably just about better as an eight. But even that, I don't think he is 100%. I think he's in the limbo between. That's why I'm starting to wonder if he is someone that will succeed at Arsenal and will make it at Arsenal. But he certainly doesn't give you what Thomas Partey gives you. So that's why I think that area is a problem. And then Eddie Nketiah, is he Gabi Jesus? No. Um, I think he brings some of the same things in that he's very energetic and that he's very uh, willing to press run channels like Gabi Jesus is. But he doesn't give you the same thing. You don't see Enketia, for example, dropping into the holes that Jesus does. And and so, again, it's not about having Partey 2.0 on the bench and uh, Jesus 2.0 on the bench that you can call upon knowing that the level is going to be exactly the same. That's impossible. It's totally unrealistic to expect that. I completely agree with you, mate. And you make a really valid point. But I think it's about having players that when you do have to make those changes, you don't disrupt your system and the mechanics of your system, which then contribute to you having to change and tweak things in other areas. And then you lose what was good about your team in the first place. That's what I think about that. But it's a great question. Really well put uh, point as well, mate. So thank you uh, so, so much. OK, going to leave it there. Uh, thank you all for tuning in. Thank you for all uh, bearing with us, staying with us. Uh, don't forget to get involved in our poll if you haven't done so already. Today's question, will Unai Emery be a success at Aston Villa? 76% of you say yes. Just 24% of you say no. I must admit, I thought that would be a little bit more split than that, but fair play. Uh, always good to gauge you guys' opinions. Uh, smash the like button if you haven't done so already. Subscribe to the channel if you're new. Check out the membership proposition by visiting the link in the description. And we'll be back uh, very soon with more. We'll be back tomorrow with uh, a preview of the game in PSV. Uh, also, if you are a member, there's a new mailbag episode out, which dropped earlier today. And if you haven't seen it already, there's a bonus episode of the podcast available to everyone in which I caught up with my good friend Shabana Hearn to talk about the Arsenal women. She's the women's football expert after all. Check it all out. Thank you so much for your continued support and I'll see you all soon. Have a good evening. Goodbye. I'm Martin Tyler and you're listening to Harry Simeon.